We're in week two of our summer series that's called Finding and Living Your Calling. And this week's topic is, uh, that I was asked to speak on is called to be loved. And I gave some thought a little bit as to how exactly I would present this topic this morning. And the more I thought about it, <clears throat> I came to realize that I, I actually couldn't come close to teaching this better than how the Bible actually teaches it itself. And so, for the next few minutes, I'd like to tell you, which is probably just a reminder for most of you, about the greatest love story ever told, and that is the, uh, the love that God has for us. Uh, last weekend, Elaine and I took the kids to Washington, and one of the places that we took a, a trip to was Arlington Cemetery. And if you've ever been to Arlington, they, there's a tram that drives through cemetery and as as you do the the tour guide will point out various important things along the way but he, they don't have time to stop at all of them <clears throat> excuse me but they do stop at some of the more important spots and uh we kind of kind of do the same thing this morning as we take a high view through the scriptures and we look at god's love for us we will take one stop along the way and kind of focus in a little bit on some of the passages that show us directly how God speaks to us about his love. So we begin and uh, start at uh, Genesis, the first book in the Bible. So there's a few Bibles there if you, if you want. We're going to go to Genesis 1 and 26, and we're going to look at the creation of man. Genesis 1 and 26 says, and then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created them. And in verse 26, it says, first verse, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. What exactly does it mean that we are created in the image of God? Obviously, God is a spirit, so it's not us. When we look out at the vast universe, we see the incredible power and the incredible design in the universe, but it doesn't tell us anything about who God is. We know that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. Obviously, it's not us. So exactly how do we share in the image of God. He has given us the ability to reason, to have rationality, but more important than that, we have the capacity to have the same moral characteristics of God, like goodness and kindness and love. And even in the most corrupt of people that have ever walked the face of the earth, there are traces of God's nature in every single person. And in Nowhere else in Genesis or in the, New, in, in the Bible does God ever mention the fact that he created anything in his own image except for man. It's only man, it's only us that reflect the nature of God. Now this is something that the early church fathers called, <clears throat> excuse me, the Imago Dei, which in Latin is for the nature of God. 
Every person who has ever lived has carried this Imago Dei, the capacity to reflect the holy character and nature of God. And of all of God's characters, characteristics, all of who God is at his very essence, God is love. Now there's something else in this verse that stands out to us that applies to the conversation this morning about God's love, and that is when he says, let us make human beings in our image, in our, in our likeness, to be like us. God is revealing something very unique about himself, and that is that he was not alone when, he, when God created. He didn't say, let me make man in my image. He said, let us, in the plural, make man in our image. And this is the first of many references throughout the Bible that indicate that God is actually a plurality, that God is actually a triune being, three distinct persons within one Godhead. And why does this matter? Because if God in his very essence is love, if God was alone prior to creation, then who or what was God loving before he created anything? But the fact is, is that God was already in an eternal relationship with the Trinity prior to creating anything. Now, several times in the New Testament, Jesus made reference to the fact that he shared glory and love with the Father before the creation of the world. And one of those is in John 17. When he says, Father, <clears throat> I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. The us within the Godhead created man to be like them so that we would have the capacity to share in the same love that this Trinity had enjoyed for all of eternity. But also within the creation, God gave man rationality, the ability to reason, and the freedom to choose. And not two chapters later, man used his freedom and chose poorly. He chose against God's instructions, against the plan that God had for Adam and Eve, and instead, they became outcasts and alienated, no longer having that close relationship with God. Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden that day, and mankind has rebelled against God ever since. So if you can imagine for a moment just what God had actually planned for humanity and what instead it's all become. Man had planned, or God had planned that man would have a loving relationship with him, that we would walk through life with the same intimacy that Adam and Eve had, that we would know God in a very real and in a very personal way, and that we would actually be friends by, with God. But instead of that, what has it become? For, for many people, many people, God is nothing more than a mythological figure or a product of the human imagination or just a crutch to cope with life haunting reality of death. In God's original plan, it was for a society, a world that would mirror his goodness, his kindness, his joy, his love. It was a world that was ruled with unimaginable blessing. But instead, man shunned and rejected him, choosing a life apart from God. And in so doing, man became enemies towards God. This is kind of a strange thing. This is not the kind of conversation that you would have about God by the water cooler at work 
or if you were to just pick up a book somewhere on God. But it's exactly what Paul wrote to the Colossians when he says that once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, prior to our coming to Christ, each and every one of us were alienated from God. A year or so ago, Elaine and I had the opportunity to spend a weekend in Boston. And while we were there, we took a walk through the Boston Common and came across something that is unfortunately a very common scene for any of, the, of you that may have lived in a big city or traveled to big city. As we were walking through the common, came by a park bench, homeless man sitting there, ragged clothes, no shoes, unkept beard, unkept hair, screaming profanities as, at people as they walked by. You know, it's a very sad picture, but a very eye-opening reality that this is exactly how God viewed each and every one of us before the cross. Having rebelled against God, we were alienated from him. We were dirty, homeless, by our very lifestyles, cursing God. And it may not look that way outwardly, but in, this was an inward reality for all of us before we came to Christ. And I submit to you that this is exactly how God viewed each and every one of us. As Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? We were God's enemies, separated in a depraved state. And now through the cross, according to Romans, we have peace with God. In Ephesians, Paul writes and highlights the differences between the hostility we had with God and the peace that we now have with God. He writes, for he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulation. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were, who were far away and peace to you who were near. But through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Twice in this passage, Paul talks about the hostility we had with God. Four times in this passage, he talks about the peace that we now have with God. And in verse 16, he says that we now have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. So, with all of this in mind, the hostility we once had towards God, the fact that men were enemies towards God, this is our, the backdrop, this is our reference point when we come to passages in the Bible like John 3.16, that man was an enemy towards God. And in, in that relationship, God says, for God so loved the world that he that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him 
would not perish, but have everlasting life. Through Jesus' death and Jesus' the punishment that he took for us, we have been restored from that relationship to a friendly relationship with God. We now have peace with God. And not only peace, he now calls us his children. Paul writes to the Galatians and says, well, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And we look at John 15, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. By no accomplishment of our own, we are now God's children. He called us while we were sinners, while we were enemies towards him. We don't have to work for God's approval or earn his love. In fact, there's nothing that we can do to earn or deserve his approval. It's a gift. It's what the New Testament writers call grace, which is unmerited favor. It's the most refreshing part of our relationship with God. He initiates the love towards us when we did nothing to deserve it. And unlike any other religion in the world, Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion, it's a relationship between God and man. So with all of this, a little bit, a little bit quick to get to where here, this is where the tram stops for a minute. And with this as a backdrop, I want to take a moment read to you some passages where our loving Father speaks to us with promises from the words of his Son. For this, I need glasses. Matthew, take a moment and just sit back and listen to this as a love letter from the Father through the words of Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. For is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in bonds, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Matthew, he leads on, and he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Oh, what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Paul to the Romans says, for neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Probably the most comforting of them all, on the night before he was crucified, Jesus with his disciples said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. These are promises from God to those who are his children. Those who take Jesus to be their Lord and their Savior, it's these that he calls friends. And it is only through Christ that we have access to the Father. Now, at the outset I I mentioned that God at his very essence is love, that love permeates the very essence of God and who he is and all that he does. And in spite of mankind's rebellion against him, God has a deep love for every person that has ever walked the face of the earth. Every person. Even those who rebel against him are most precious to God. Because, first off, because they're made in the image of their creator, they have infinite value to God. And secondly, because through redemption in Christ, every person has the capacity to grow into the very character and likeness of Jesus. So for we as Christians, we have gone from being loved by God because we're his creation and we reflect his image to being loved by God as intimate members of his family. Sometimes it's helpful to look into the original languages of the New Testament to highlight some of the distinctions between particular words. Kenneth Wiest is a New Testament scholar, and he's written on several of the uses of the word love in the New Testament, but the two that are of most interest to us here this morning are agape and phileo, probably very familiar to you, often put up in the middle of a message when speaking about love. But I want you to look at this in light of what we're talking about here. We says that agape is a love that is awakened by a sense of value in an object which causes one to prize it. It's a love that it's awakened by a sense of value. Phileo is a love that is called out of one's heart as a result of the pleasure that one takes in a person or an object. Now notice this. God has an agape love for all persons, even those that are alienated from him. God loves all men that have ever lived because they have value, because they bear his image, because they bear his likeness. This is the agape type of love. But for us who are Christians, God also has the phileo love, a love that comes from his heart because he actually takes pleasure in us. He calls us his friends, he calls us his children. 
First John, John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called his children. And so we are. And what a blessing for us who are in God's family as Christians. We now are able to share in the eternal love that the Trinity has shared from eternity past. We've been called into that love relationship with God. The Father has promised to watch over us and to provide for us. We have an ocean of God's love in which we can have true joy that even surpasses the hardships that we encounter in life. We have rest and we have fine peace and assurance that God watches over us. In John 15, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, that you love each other as I have loved you. For greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So with all of this, all of this, as the foundation for our relationship with God, how do we love that homeless person in the Boston Common? How do we love the person on the other side of the world that we've never met? How do we love that person who may have inflicted hurt into our lives? As we mature in our walk with Christ and become more like him, we're able to look past the outward appearances, past those acts that may have offended us, and instead, we look at a person and we can see the imago dei. We can see them as created in the image of God. We can see them as lost sheep that God is longing to have brought into the fold, into his family. This is how God found us. We were lost, we were dirty, we were ragged, and we were offensive to him. So it's only when we come to this mindset that Jesus' words in Matthew can even begin to make sense to us when he said, you have heard it said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your Father who is in heaven. God's love for us is comforting, a comforting joy and an assurance of what lies ahead as we go through life. It strengthens us it encourages us when we're feeling down. And when life's road is difficult, it's our rock. It's our hiding place from the storms of life. And, and so there's a lot to think about. I mean, a lot to think about when you think about God's love. It's the very essence who God is. The ultimate eternal God, and at his very essence, he's love. For us to try to grasp this in a 20-minute talk or so, is impossible. For us to fully grasp God's love and to be able to share that love is a lifelong process of which we will never ever come to the end. And even with all of eternity, we'll never fully come to grasp the depths of the deep, deep love that God has for each and every one of us. So, Time is moving on. Just a couple of closing personal thoughts by way of application. How does this all apply? 
our daily lives. A couple of thoughts. First, when we start to get a glimpse of the Father's love for us and his promises that he'll watch over for us and provide us, there is a peace, there's a peace that's there for our taking. What's required of us is to just simply to take him at his word, to have faith in God that he will do as he promised. Several years ago, I went to a conference, and one of the speakers said something that I haven't forgotten and probably will never forget for all of my life. He said, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? God is there, and God is real. And the rest that awaits us is there if we'll just simply trust in his promises. Secondly, our ability to love the undesirable and those who have wronged us is only possible when we understand God's love. We may never have that phileo type of love for the person. But we can have that agape type of love that's awakened by the fact that that person is created in the image of God. And that person is so precious to him that he sent his son into the world to die on a cross in order to enable a way for that person to become a child of God just as we are. And seeing people who may be undesirable to us through this lens will have a changing effect on us and open our hearts to love them just as God loves them.